0: Welcome to this podcast, which is produced for the Norwegian Youth Atlantic Treaty Association's annual Nordic Security Conference. Today's topic is a follow-up podcast with one of the participants from NORSEC about Saudi Arabia and its global role in the world. My name is Emil Klaashaugen, and with me today is Bjørn Olav Utvik. Welcome, uh, Björn Olav, and uh, thank you so much for agreeing to do this uh, follow-up uh, podcast with us. Thanks for having me. Björn Olav is a professor in Middle East Studies at the Center for Islamic and Middle East Studies at the University of Oslo. His work focuses on the contemporary political history of the Middle East. He's the leading Nordic specialist on Islamist movement in the region. He also wrote a book about Islamism which will be published in English this year. I want to jump straight into what you talked about in Norsek, because uh, you talked there about how Saudi Arabia saw the Arab spring as a long-term threat to their rule, and therefore used both a stick and a carrot to avoid the unrest from spreading into their country. I wondered if you could elaborate on how Saudi Arabia so effectively managed to stop this demand for democracy in their country and how their efforts internally affected groups in other countries in the MENA region.
1: Well, to take first how, how they were able to, to, to stop it. So they, uh, of course, there was a huge mobilization of, of uh, security forces. Uh, And there was intense uh, surveillance of any oppositional activity. And then they, uh, for example, one day it was announced a day of rage in in Riyadh. I mean, people called for a demonstration through uh, social media. Uh, So they amassed uh, enormous uh, thousands and thousands of of police to the to the venue that was supposed to uh, where this demonstration was supposed to be held. Uh, One guy showed up who was, of course, Arrested. Also, uh, other things happened. Uh, Manifestos were published in the in the in the media, or or not least on the on the internet, calling for constitutional reform, uh, for more influence for popularly elected assemblies, and and so on. And they immediately uh, arrested those. uh, I mean, if those people had been daring enough to put their names uh, under these uh, manifestos, so they were immediately arrested. There was an attempt to form a political party uh first in Saudi Arabia at the time also the the organizers were were um, were arrested uh there was in the coastal region to the east where there's historically uh, have been a Shia majority in some areas Shia Muslim majority there were uh demonstrations quite quite large demonstration actually and there were clashes with the police um so there they they didn't they were not able to stop and an uprising, but they were able to to quell it. One thing which they did very effectively was to be uh, whether they were able to split the majority population, which is a Sunni Muslim population, from these activist uh, Shia in the east and also in neighboring Bahrain, which has a Shia majority, who rebelled in the Arab Spring and wanted democracy. And uh, Saudi troops and troops also from the Emirates went into Bahrain and and helped the king there, uh, strike it down. So at the same time, they mobilized, they did two things then uh, in addition to this uh, suppression. Uh, Well, three things. I mean, they also enormously increased the budgets of the security sector. But then two things more. The carrot part is that they... Uh, increased the wages enormously and, and um, uh, invested in sort of uh, health care schools, sort of upgraded uh, the the, uh, the benefits that the population uh, enjoy. And then the last thing is that they, along with this striking down the Shia, uh, the riots in the Shia uh, areas, they started a massive propaganda, religious propaganda Against uh, Shiism and also against Iran it's it's a double-edged thing is that they say uh, there, there's an in, in Saudi Arabia in the Wahhabi religious tradition which has been dominant in Saudi Arabia there's a Uh, quite vicious anti-Shia attitude, The Shias are not really Muslims, not really seen as as Muslims, and so they drew on that uh, anti-Shia tradition, at the same time as the Shia demonstrating were cast as uh, not reliable patriots, as agents of Iran. Iran, of course, being the big Shia nation
0: uh, in the region. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you also briefly mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood uh, during Norsec, could you quickly just explain to us uh, who are they and and why did they Saudi Arabia try to frame them as terrorists during the Arab Spring?
1: Yeah, first, who are they? The Muslim Brothers is perhaps the uh, the first modern Islamist organization in the region. One often dates the start of Islamism as an ideological movement with the founding of the Muslim Brothers in which happened in Egypt in 1928 and over the quite rapidly actually it developed into a mass movement we see a, a the biggest mass social movement the middle east has, has ever uh, seen it has been through ups and downs but it spread out it became a mass organization in egypt and then it spread to almost every arab country with with the with the sunni uh, majority it was a religious it's a movement of religious revival sort of uh, uh, reviving and, and asking people to be more practicing Muslims in their in their daily lives, but also rapidly then expanded from there to an engagement with issues like poverty and health and doing charitable work, and then also, well, after at least a decade, uh, this this also formed the basis for a political agenda for uh, creating an sort of Islamic uh, order, as it were. To jump fast forward, it was by the 1950s it was a big international organization was suppressed in some countries for some time but then again from 1970s it, it the muslim brothers became the main beneficiary of the an upsurge of islamism among the youth not least among the students of the 1970s and going forward to 80s and 90s and so on so uh, again it expanded uh, hugely and became a re- region-wide movement now so why are they now uh, targeted by by the Saudis? Well, uh, it's uh, from the Saudi point of view, uh, the Muslim Brothers are suspicious first just by being just by the fact of being a non-governmental organization. I mean, a, 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 an organization outside of the control of the states and the countries where they are active that are mobilizing from from the bottom up. Uh, and that is seen as something that is threatening, threatening stability. Yeah. Secondly, from at least 19, late 1970s, 1980s, the Islamists uh, or, or the Muslim Brothers and and, and uh, the various movements that are more closely, or more or less closely aligned, aligned with the Muslim Brothers, developed a view of so an Islamic order. What does that What, what does that mean in terms of what kind of political order does this mean? And they moved step by step to a more and more democratic platform, advocating free elections, um, free forming of political parties and, uh, and a, yeah, a multi-party uh, system. That doesn't
0: sound very uh, like it would fit the Saudi regime very much.
1: No, it doesn't. And also because Saudi Arabia had sort of built its international legitimacy of being sort of the defenders of true Islam. And, of course, spending enormous amounts in supporting the building of of mosques and and funding of Muslim charities. Not only in the Arab world, but uh, but across across the Muslim world and even in the diaspora in in, uh, in the West, for example. Uh, So, but here is another movement, a huge movement, which also claims to represent what true Islam is. And saying that true Islam, among a lot of other things, means democracy. Which sort of uh, was a, a very uh, seen as a dangerous challenge by the by the uh, Saudis. Then came the Arab Spring. Then came elections in, in several countries like Egypt and Tunisia, where the Islamists did, uh, or the Muslim Brothers and, and or Al-Nahda in Tunisia did very well and in some periods came into to positions. So they were seen to be in the forefront of this uh, of this Arab Spring, and so they had to strike against them.
0: You mentioned this briefly. Uh, regarding uh, saudi arabia and iran because if i have understood correctly they've had a more or less ongoing conflict since 1979 through various proxy wars Hmm. since the arab spring we've seen them taking opposite sides in both the syrian and yemeni civil war with quite catastrophic results where does this hostility come from
1: I think it basically, basically it comes from uh, a regional rivalry. These are both, uh, of course, uh, oil powers. Uh, actually, there was a phase uh, before 1979 when, when Iran was a monarchy ruled by the Pahlavi dynasty. I don't know if you can say that Saudi Arabia and Iran were allies, but they were both close allies of the United States. So there was like a, a more, a more uh,
0: proxy friendship.
1: Yeah, or, and a benevolent uh, rivalry maybe for the favors of, of, of the US, but they were uh, more or less on the same side in the Cold War. And uh, actually, Iranian troops at one point crossed the, the Hormuz Strait and were helping strike down a socialist rebellion in Oman in the 70s. And, and then came the revolution, of course, which toppled the monarchy and which uh, created an Islamic Republic, a sort of a radical version of, uh, of Islam, which seemed very threatening from Saudi Arabia. In the very beginning, the, the, this did not only have appeal in Shia, among Shia Muslims, but also to a wider sort of radical Muslim youth in, in, in the 1970s. So it was seen as, as, as uh, threatening in, in, in that sense. But, uh, but more longer term it is that that Iran is is also a uh, potentially rich uh, oil power and it's in so many ways it's so much stronger than Saudi Arabia because it has a, it has a population I mean if the Saudi national population I mean there are many migrants in Saudi Arabia but the national population is somewhat above the 20 million the Iranian population is 80 million but four times as many people. It has a much more uh, diversified economy, a healthy industrial sector. I mean, it's struggling under sanctions for many years now, but it it has a much more diversified uh, productive capacity. And then Saudi Arabia has been able to keep its position, of course, because of its wealth, but also because of its uh, close alliance first with Britain, when Britain was the dominant sort of Overarching power in the region, and then since the Second World War with the U.S., so it was under the umbrella of the U.S. Okay, Iran was there first. Iran was also under the umbrella of the U.S. Then Iran became an enemy of the U.S. So Saudi Arabia had a strengthened position in that sense. But there's always this uh, nervousness that uh, that uh, Iran may emerge as as stronger, and this nervousness has has grown because of several developments. Uh, I mean, not least connected to the fact that there is, at least it's felt from Riyadh, that the U.S., although it's still present it has troops in the region, but it's gradually the U.S. is is lessening its uh, presence. And, and there's always this fear that the U.S. will now focus on China and on the, the strategic balance in the Pacific region uh, and so on. As the U.S. goes away, so there, there's a more open competition for influence uh, in the Gulf region. And actually, they have seen that Iran has moved its positions forward. Ironically, I mean, one of the most important ways it did so was because the U.S. attacked Iraq and and overthrew Saddam Hussein. And what came in place, a sort of democracy, at least uh, an elected government, who won those elections? Shia Islamist parties that are allied with Iran. So Iran now has huge influence in, in Iraq. And then, as we know alliance with Syria, Hezbollah and Lebanon, and then lately the, the Houthi re- rebellion in, in, in Yemen. The Houthis are Islamists, they are uh, Shia, but they actually belong to a, to a branch of Shia, which is very remote from the Iranian one, so there's no sort of immediate uh, religious connection, but where could the Houthis go if they needed allies? So, so this so so iran was there and willing to support so now this has also become an alliance and so all this from from Riyadh is seen as very threatening and and then what they fear what they also have feared all along is that a reconciliation like when when they were they have been dead opposed to the nuclear uh, agreement so because they fear that the reconciliation between iran and the us could somewhere at the end of the road lead back to the situation before 1979 where the US uh is allied with with uh, with Tehran and Saudi Arabia become less important for the US
0: let me then move on to the the US Saudi re- relation because most people with internet have seen this ominous slash hilarious picture of American president Donald Trump, Egyptian president al-Sisi and Saudi King Salman with this glowing orb or globe, I guess it was. Mm. But the U.S.-Saudi relations uh, have been uh, good long before Trump entered the stage. Uh, So... Why is it that the self-proclaimed protector of democracy, USA, is willing to be such a key ally to what many in the Western part of the world would call a brutal dictatorship in Saudi
1: Arabia? Well, without being too simplistic, of course, one easy answer is oil. I think it's there is no doubt that uh, Britain before them, and then the US uh, as the sort of hegemonic power on the on the Western side uh, saw it as in their strategic interest to, to, to control more or less the, the delivery of oil to, to the world, as it were, and, and the Gulf, especially after the Second World War, the Gulf became uh, well, perhaps the most important center for production of oil and production of oil in a region with a relatively low population. So it was an exporter, became an exporter of, of oil because they didn't have all that much use for it themselves. This relation was established uh, uh, during the Second World War with uh, and direct meetings between the American president and I think and uh, the the founder of the Saudi Kingdom, uh, uh, King Abdelaziz. Of course, then became the Cold War, and in the Arab world, uh, starting from 1952 with a military coup in, in in Egypt, which launched a sort of radical nationalist rule there, and which event- eventually also took up. Socialist slogans in the run of the 50s and early 60s. Similar things happen in several Arab countries. So then, by the at least by the 1960s, you have a situation where you have a number of central Arab countries, Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and some others, with uh, radical officer uh, rulers who are aligning themselves with the Soviet bloc. So now the Middle East becomes part and parcel of, of the Cold War. If the US have, had ever sort of doubted uh, the the wisdom of allying with the Saudis, I think now such uh, doubts would, would go away. Because, I mean, from a strategic point of view, they would look for regionally strong uh, partners. Now, Egypt would be one candidate, but was uh, now taken over by a sort of more or less hostile <laughs> uh, powers. And uh, Syria, Iraq, uh, the same. That made for the decision to stick with uh, to stick with Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia. It was the best bet. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I think it's uh, sad, but it is a fact that uh, questions of human rights have been pushed to the back, put up against um, economic, some what is seen as basic economic and strategic uh, interests. What then with uh, the
0: new American president, uh, Biden? Will we see any change, do you think, based on, for example, this state ordered murder? of journalist Jamal Khashoggi it just basically goes against any human right or, or any legal anything which the U.S. Uh, tries to support.
1: Well, I think, of course, there would be a more uh, perhaps decent or whatever we call it, rhetoric than, than it was with Donald Trump who would who would be willing to, to quite openly support the uh, dictates. I mean, maybe he didn't actually support the murder of Khashoggi, but he sort of brushed it aside um, measured against the uh, billions of dollars of, of uh, defense contracts and, and so on, which was much more important to the U.S. than one murdered journalist, uh, so, so you wouldn't hear that kind of thing from from Biden. I wouldn't rule out that there might be some a shift now to a policy, at least some some gentle pressure, and, and uh, for example, for releasing political prisoners. But I wouldn't be too op- optimistic about it. There might have been a window of opportunity uh, after the Arab Spring, when the, when the masses in the Arab countries themselves stood up, overthrew rulers, and, and the, for a while, in 2011-2012, there seemed to be emerging new, more democratic rules, elected governments in some countries. And I think the Americans, that was the time when Hillary and Obama was president, Hillary Clinton was foreign minister, I think they they tentatively sought out, could they deal with, for example, the Muslim brothers in in Egypt as a new set of rulers. Now, then there was a military coup in in Egypt, which was really changed the balance in the the whole region. And now it seems like both the US and the West more generally have fallen back to an older position of, okay, there will not be democracy here, let's go for stability. In that
0: extension, we have now seen that uh, Prince bin Salman is more or less seen as the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia. Uh, He has been applauded by Western leaders for some of the reforms he has overseen, including lifting the ban on women driving and seeking to diversify the economy. However, he has also been... Heavily criticized for, uh, as I said, the murder of Khashoggi, as well as cracking hard down on dissidents and pursuing the war in Yemen. Seen with the Western eyes, you're not supposed to talk for all of us, but do you believe that he will do more good than harm, both in his country and abroad?
1: No, I mean, it's. Uh, I used to say, as, as a historian, I'm good at predicting the past, but not... Or, <laughs> yeah. Making uh, guesses about the past, but uh, not about the future. No, but I, I remain skeptical, to say the least. Mohammed bin Salman, as, as a young, younger generation, the, the first from the young generation who probably will become king, he has seen, as have many others in the region, of course, that they cannot create stability by ruling in the old way there's no way back to There's no way back to just staying on the same policies and then get the stability like it was before 2010. You have to do, uh, because it was the youth that rebelled, that wouldn't accept the old ways, and they were dissatisfied with the lack of economic uh, development, of job opportunities, uh, and so on, and also with the lack of political participation. So if the South, just to put it in a narrow perspective, and I, which I think is important for Mohammed bin Salman, If the Saud family should continue to rule, they must do things, they must do something new. He has certainly decided that that new should not be to implement democracy, so they have to do something else. And he's trying to do two or three things. Internally in Saudi Arabia, this cultural opening for entertainment, for for sports, and giving women more uh, access to drive a car, but also... Making, I don't know how far they've got this, but there's there's been some changes in this system patriarchal system where men may, where women need male guardians. Uh, it's not it's not been done away with, but they, are, they have eased the regulations. So the idea behind all this is to, of course, I mean, to gain the support of the youth and of women, but these women are most of them are younger as well. Secondly, there's this. Uh, what they call vision 2030 so this is the other thing so one thing is a cultural liberalization another is to promise a bright economic future a future which should be uh, green which should wean saudi arabia of oil and diversify the economy and and to finance uh, also that then has also promised to put uh at the aramco which is the saudi oil company which is of course enormously uh, it, it's worth a lot <laughs> to say the least uh so he's talked about uh, putting that in the in the, mar- in the stock stock market selling stocks uh for it the privatizing it sort of bit by bit and to and and the idea being that that would create enormous uh, income which could be used to uh, launch huge projects uh, and so on but I think uh, the jury is, uh, this was launched, I think, in 2017, something, uh, maybe a little before that. Uh, the jury is still out to what extent they will succeed in creating a real uh, economic uh, change. But and uh, these are sort of the positive aspects. At the same time, and I mean, seen from Amin um, businessman's perspective, it's a prerequisite. Has to be done simultaneously to strike down any 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 attempt at independent organizing, political participation. So this should all be done from above. Uh, uh, and the positive sides granted as uh, gifts from from the king. So once again, the stick
0: and the carrot.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, I said that they couldn't rule in the old way. It seemed like at one point, at least, they decided also that. That also held true for the regional policies, because traditionally, um, as I said at my talk at, at North Northsec, so traditionally Saudi Arabia had used its influence or had tried to to project its power through through money, through diplomacy and and uh, and money. Now, uh, uh, increasingly after the Arab Spring, they went. They went into intervening much more directly and openly in the affairs of other countries in the region, because the most extreme example being the Yemen, uh, the, their intervention in the in the civil war in in Yemen. But they also uh, there was this famous scene where they sort of took uh, the prime minister of Lebanon who was visiting Saudi Arabia, put him up in a hotel, and forced him to go on television and say that he resigned. As prime minister of Lebanon. Then, eventually, under huge pressure, he was let out. And as soon as he was out of Saudi Arabia, he uh, <laughs> changed his decision and he went back as prime minister. It didn't lead to much, but so one, one example of how they were now willing to sort of go, be quite blatant about their uh, influence. But that, of course, is risky because it creates uh, resistance, it creates enemies around the region. Um, and and currently, we'll see. It is possible that they are now trying to pull a little bit back uh, from that, uh, yeah, from the brink, as it were. I see uh, our
0: time is uh, running out. I guess we will see in in some years whether or not uh, Bin Salman will be positive for the country itself and for the rest of the world. Once again, I would uh, thank you so much for. Uh, participating gernola this has been really interesting for me and i'm sure our listeners will agree
1: yeah thanks again for for having me it's uh, both at the norsek and and here thank you
0: thank you for listening to this podcast produced by yata norway for NORSEC 2021 make sure to follow yata on facebook and instagram to keep up with our latest events and publications If you missed out on Norsec, you can find the stream on Facebook.